Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 22nd day of April. I am your host, Paul White. It is Long Form Friday, and that's why this is a much longer post on your podcast feed than it normally is. This is one of those programs where we're going to put something special, something different up in its entirety. And as we've been telling you this week, it will be a conversation that I had. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. If you're in the Columbia, South Carolina area, we are in Chapin, South Carolina tonight at 6.30 p.m. And then we are in Flowery Branch, Georgia at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday. These are the monthly meetings we host hold with these two groups and very happy to be with them. And I look so forward to it. Come be with us if you're in the area. Uh, listen tomorrow on the podcast as we'll give you uh, a heads up for what is about to air. Uh, we told you about it last weekend in that it's the Easter sermon from Westminster, but I'll give you some more details and uh, sort of clue you in on what to expect on Sunday. Okay, today on the Long Form Friday, I want to present to you a conversation that I had recently with my good friend Jonathan Carver, uh, who is currently serving as a pastor in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, he and his wife, Michelle, are good friends of Natasha and mine and, and have been for uh, 30 years or more. I've known Jonathan at least 30 years, maybe longer than that. Uh, we are uh, not just ministry friends, but life friends. And um, he is someone who I uh, am so thankful for, not just because of what he is doing, but because of who he is. And so when he asks me to do something, if it's within my my ability, I'm going to do it. And he asked if I, he is, he's teaching um, in a school there in Haiti, and he asked if I would set in on a conversation with him regarding the politics of the Bible. This was birthed because uh, I think the the reason he wanted to talk to me was our, our podcast on Joseph and his sort of machinations in that Egyptian governmental role and how his his movements actually sort of ended up mirroring some of the totalitarian movements we've seen. And, and what does that mean? What are the implications to that? So that got us going down some really good roads. This is about a 45, 46-minute conversation, maybe a little longer. I'm going to give it to you in its entirety. Um, I recorded his portion of the conversation via cell phone, and then mine is through a studio mic. So my my side quality is a little better, but I'm really... I think this the other end holds up really well. So if you have to do some volume changes, just know that when I talk, I usually talk a long time. So you will know uh, you can leave it the, the volume uh, where on that for quite some time. You know me and my style. Um, I'm not going to get into any more. I'll let the conversation sort of take care of itself. Uh, Jonathan jumps in and introduces what we're doing, and and then we get busy. And so this is um, my friend Jonathan Carver and I. Um, talking about the politics of the Bible. We'll go straight out of this uh, with a goodbye. We'll see you tomorrow. Hope you enjoy. God bless. Yesterday, we uh, opened up with a few of our definitions about uh, politics. We talked about politics being defined as the struggle for power, okay. uh, particularly for one or a few persons to make decisions on behalf of a larger group of people. And we talked about some of the key words that are identifiable within that context. One of the major ones being government. Um, we study mostly democracies. We do discuss socialism and communism and some other totalitarian totalitarianism and some other things like that along the way, but it's usually juxtaposed against the, the overall theories of within the context of democracy. Uh, so we just refreshed on that so that we would be thinking in terms of big ideas as it related to scriptural instances, mm-hmm. uh, to, to be clear. And we had a very good discussion. What we did is we started out a little bit in Romans chapter 13, where all authorities were, um, were given by God. And we actually broke into the idea of uh, why did God give the law? And we use the story of the rich young ruler and how that it was countermanded by uh, the loving your neighbor and how that the law was intended to protect our neighbors, which is what governments by and large are designed to do. And that is to protect uh, and secure the rights uh, to provide goods and services to its citizens, but also more importantly, to protect uh, its citizens from having their freedoms violated and especially the 
those of its weakest citizens. Mm. Uh, we even pulled in James 1, uh, chapter 1, about the widows and orphans, and we talked about that. Then we made an application to the book of Daniel, chapter 10, where he mourned and prayed for three weeks, and the angel come and touched him. And you remember he was fighting with the prince of Persia. Michael comes and helps him, and he goes back, and he's going to fight with the prince of Greece. And, um, and so... The spiritual entities were indicative of the earthly governments and kingdoms. That's kind of where we left off yesterday. And there was one unbelievably great question that was asked from one of my students yesterday. And they said, okay, we believe that all government is given and all authority is given by God and that God has set that up for man. She said, but what what happens when government is bad? Hmm. What happens when government does its job? I thought it was a fabulous question, and I didn't really have time to entertain that. So you may want to jump in on that, and um, let's go wherever you, you – you've been given 24 hours to think about this. So let's see what you've got to say about some of those, uh, some of those concepts. Well, perhaps it's the perfect place to start is that question. What, what, what happens when governments go bad? And. Um, I think it's the framework for that question is based on the fact that, like you said, Romans 13, Paul lays out this case that the governing authorities are ordained by God. And we kind of take that as this blanket statement about government in general, or at least we should, I think, take it about this blanket statement that um, when you look at the powers that be on the earth, consider that God has put this structure in place uh, by which I think, as you said perfectly, um, people are protected. That's when government is good, is when people are protected and the greater good is protected by government. That's where it serves its purpose, it seems to be, both socioeconomically and then I think both spiritually as well, because it takes care of the widow and the stranger and the fatherless and the poor and the marginalized and the outcast and the, and the homeless and the hurting and uh, those in poverty. And, and it, it prepares for famine and it protects what can't protect itself. Um, so how do we view it whenever it stops doing that? When it, when it tilts away from protecting the innocent to crushing or to oppression um, or to abandonment where it's, it's forgetting about its, its minorities or its marginalized, do we call that a government ordained by God? And that, that's the million dollar question. And I think that's why we have to keep reading sometimes in parts like Romans 13. Like take for instance, and I'll just jump in. I know it's a text you've covered. Um, and I don't want to read every word, but the, the basic gist of those first seven verses is be subject to those powers. They hold the sword to execute the wrath of God upon the earth. Paul makes this interesting turn when he gets to the seventh verse, render therefore to all their due. So Paul starts to take it away from just about the government and its and the respect we have for it to what is it that I am due as a citizen? So it's not just mere loyalty, but render taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And unfortunately, almost every time we talk about the politics of the Bible, Romans 13 comes up, but we stop at verse 7 um, because we think he's done. We think he's moved on to another topic, but I think we're misreading it. I, I think... The next verse, the next set of verses is Paul's government. It is his idea about what government is good and what government is bad. And so I think it helps answer the question what happens when government goes bad. Because listen to eight. Owe no one anything, which is odd because he just told you to render to whomever you owe, taxes to whom taxes, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Then he goes, owe no one anything except to love them. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Well, government holds the law and government seeks to fulfill the law over their citizenry. So Paul actually sort of puts a mirror on government in Romans 13. And he says, consider it that God has laid it out there as a place, as the arm of authority. But what should that authority look like? It should be loving one another because that would be the actual fulfillment of the law. And the reason I bring this up is because the same guy that writes honor the government or the government is is set for authority and for power is killed by that same government. 
The Apostle Paul loses his head at the hands of the Roman authorities because he disobeyed them, which is one of the great tragic ironies of the New Testament. Um, The same Paul that says, obey what the government says, disobeyed when the government said, there's no God but Caesar. What say you? And Paul goes, oh, I'm not going to say that. There's... The, 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 the Savior of the world is not Caesar. The Savior of the world is Jesus the Christ. And that disobedience put Paul at odds with the government that killed him. And so what we see is that governments can go bad when they cease to care for the neighbor. They are no long, Paul is showing you that in that case, they are no longer ordained by God. That they cannot neglect the neighbor and neglect the, the, the actual fulfillment of God's law, which God's law is, has little to do with socioeconomics on a world scale and a lot to do with the heart of your neighbor. I mean, it's it. I think that comes down to really defining what God's government looks like, what versus man's government looks like. And so, you have Paul who basically says, "Here's the governing bodies of the world. Obey them to the extent that they honor the neighbor. And where they cease to love their neighbor, Paul says, they're no longer fulfilling the law. And therefore." How can you be bound to that which doesn't love your neighbor? And this is why in Christianity, the message of loving your neighbor becomes even more essential in face of the governments of the world is to figure out what does it look like to give allegiance to the kingdom of God in a world demanding your allegiance to their flags or to their governments or to their leaders. And Paul seems to draw the line, and it, it to me seems like the same line Christ draws, is you render to Caesar what's Caesar, you render to God what is God's. The great irony there is everything's God's first. It's only Caesar's second. And so God's law would supersede whatever Caesar's law would be. And what's God's law? Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Any man who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And just in case the student of Romans 13 wonders what Paul's talking about, he gives you the 7th, 6th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. Uh, basically, the last half of the law, the last five laws are how you treat your neighbor. The first five are how you treat your God. And so Paul basically turns it on its ear and says, if you did this, you'd be following God's government. That's what it would look like. And so that might be a way to handle that, might be a way to handle that question in light of a lot of ways to handle that question, but it seems to be where Paul lands. You know, this really, and you've already sort of crossed over into my follow-up question here, because one of our primary ideas here in comparative politics is this um, here in our Christian school, because what we try to do is take a look at academia through the lens of a Christian worldview. And one of the questions that is one of our common standards here is, is that when is it appropriate for citizens to rebel against the government. It's one of the most difficult and challenging questions that face not only American society, but as we live here in Haiti, Haiti is well known for its corruption. It's well known for its poverty. It's well known for its uh, economic fragility. Um, And in addition to that, uh, we have so much of a high level of corruption within government. Um, I mean, we've had an assassination, all these kind of things. We are constantly bombarded with manifestations and protests, uh, even to the point of uh, some very radical actions. Um, And I won't even go into all of them. So, uh, and, and, and the, the low-hanging fruit is, is when, when is it okay, is when the government isn't being fair. And, of course, fair is a very subjective word. Mm. So you've already kind of crossed the bridge there a little bit talking about what that looks like. But I'm reminded of a scripture in Proverbs uh, uh, 29.2. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn or they are they are groaning. And so talk about that a little bit. Well, it would uh, that some of that might come down to what does it look like when the righteous are in authority. Um, and we have to make sure that we understand um, righteous through the lens of God versus through the lens of, say, um, 
right wing left wing politics because if you if you determine righteousness based upon your political affiliation you're going to get a totally different answer i think than if you determine righteousness based on god's and so from a say from a new covenant perspective which is how we have to interpret what those scriptures mean to us um, righteousness, of course, is the declaration that God makes over us because of what he's done through the cross and the resurrection. Here we come up on Easter season where we really start to concentrate more on the, the fact that we're a new man on the earth and that that's our righteousness. And so um, from that point of view, where where right is being done, um, then we're all going to be we're all going to prosper when ruled beneath that righteousness rather than the opposite. I would also declare that one of the great translation issues with the Bible is the fact that we so frequently interchange words um, that if we had taken the road less traveled in the interpretation, we might have ended up with a little cleaner way to, uh, cleaner is probably not the right word, um, might end up with a little different interpretation. It might be more we'd have to wrestle with. And one of those words is righteousness, because in both the old and the new, and particularly in the new, um, the word is interchangeable with the word justice. Um, Take, for instance, in the New Testament, the word for righteousness is uh, always translated righteousness, but it's also the word for justice. Uh, it's tragic that the word justice doesn't appear in that form in the New Testament. Why doesn't it? It was a translation decision. It was to say that, well, the New Testament is about your personal righteousness. Is it? Or is it about the justice of the world as executed through the cross and the resurrection of Christ? And if that's the case, when the righteous rule, it's when justice rules that people are blessed, not just when a man who has declared his righteousness. That's like Jesus' statement in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The word is the same in the Greek to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be filled. When you have people chanting, no justice, no peace, they actually have scripture for that. Um, That's not just a political statement, though it's been politicized, no doubt. It actually has New Testament legs to say, there can be no peace in the heart of man where there is no justice. Um, so where we're seeking after righteousness, we're seeking after justice. So then the question becomes, what does that justice look like? I would add a question to your very good question, which is when is it okay for, say, the people of God or for any people to rebel against their government? Because that was the great question had to be asked here in the United States uh, about our own revolution and any revolution of any country. Um, when is that appropriate? I would ask a little harder question, one that I think takes even more wrestling, and that is how do they rebel against their government? Because it's one thing to say when it's appropriate. It's another thing to say What does that look like when you do it? And is it okay to pick up the exact same mechanisms of the the world or the government and fight them back with the same mechanism? Is that ordained of God? And it seems like the church at large has sort of landed on the answer by any means necessary. Once you finally rebel, you can use the exact same equipment that the government used on you or the exact same means that the world uses on its on its citizens. The, the kingdom of God, it's okay to go ahead and pick that up. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but Jesus seems to disagree. Um, Jesus is confronted with the soldiers in the garden and Peter pulls his sword and Jesus says, permit even this, put your sword up. The same Jesus who had told him to take the sword tells him not to pull it. And so the message there seems to be know when not to pull your sword, not know when to pull it. And so I like to ask the harder question, which is not when is it okay to rebel, but rather what would that rebellion look like if it were seated in the kingdom of God rather than influenced by the kingdoms of the world? Um, And that... Maybe that that's a, an appropriate place to sort of break down what what those kingdoms are and what that politic looks like. Um, some people say that we we don't have any room to be political because we're Christian. I don't think they understand that they serve someone who calls himself a king. The Bible calls Jesus the King of Kings. The moment you mention a king, you're political. 
kings lead governments. So if we follow a king, then we have a politic. Now, the decision then is not whether we have a politic because we have a king. The decision then is where does our king rule from and where do our loyalties lie? And then that becomes more important than our natural politics. And to me, that, that's exemplified. Say when Jesus stands in front of Pilate in John 18, and uh, Pilate asks him if he's a king. Of course, Jesus says, well, you've said that. And he says, my kingdom, however, is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, which is a fascinating response. Put, break that down. My kingdom's not from here. I am a king but you can't see my kingdom. If my followers, if my kingdom were a kingdom like the kingdoms you're used to, Pilate, my servants would do what your servants do. In other words, if my kingdom was like your kingdom, my people would do what your kingdom's people do. Your soldiers pick up swords and fight. My soldiers would pick up swords and fight. It's almost as if we've ignored that whenever we decide that rebellion is, has been fomented and is proper. Therefore, we pick up the exact instruments of Pilate. And Jesus disagrees. He goes, hey, it's not as if my kingdom's going to bow to your kingdom, Pilate. It's not as if we're going to lose. But we're not going to win the way you would try to win. And that hasn't changed. And, and I, think, I think the faster we sort of get to the bottom of why that is, maybe we rediscover our own faith, okay? For instance, um, and jump in. If I'm talking too much, <laughs> just jump in. I get on a roll. You know me. Yes, I do. <laughs> Same as me. Um, I think that there is there's several ways, of course, to look at anything, but... One way that kind of helps me on this is to see it as there's the politics of heaven, um, there's the politics of earth, and there's the politics of hell. And I I don't mean a literal political agenda, a constitution hanging on the walls of heaven or a constitution on the halls of hell, but in in an alliteration fashion to say that there are different ways of governing ourselves, okay? And so... Let me start with the most obvious one, and that's the politics of earth. We're all earthy. We we live in the flesh, and we have Republicans and Democrats and independents, and we have senates and representatives. We have our kings and our presidents. We have our politic, and they are of earth. Means, And really what I mean by that is they're the best effort of man to ameliorate the condition of mankind. They are us doing what we can to govern ourselves in a way in which everyone rises, in which no one's left behind, in which the good is done and the bad is avoided. That's Earth's politics at its best. That's men and women trying to use their God-given gifts of leadership and intelligence and sacrifice to do the greater good. Out of that comes declarations of independence and constitutions and laws that hopefully govern towards the good. It's men and women doing the best they can and, and being led by God and trying to be, to do what they can to make the world a better place. Um, then there's the politics of heaven and the politics of heaven look like Jesus and the politics of heaven are best exemplified on a personal basis you're, you're told to carry it a mile, you carry it too. You're struck on the cheek, you turn to him the other one. You love your enemies and you pray for your persecutors. Honestly, it's too heady for the politics of earth. It's over our head. It's too big for us. We go, wow, how in the world do you put that into NATO? How do you drop that into uh, international diplomacy? How do you look at a, a dictator or a tyrant and you handle him... And my response to that is the politics of heaven and the politics of earth don't always line up together, but at its best, the politics of earth is trying to reach up into the politics of heaven and implement as much of it as possible. And then there's the politics of hell. And the politics of hell crush and destroy and overrun and overrule and step on. They are the equipment They are the instruments of death, but they manifest themselves subtly because hell always manifests itself subtly. They manifest themselves in power 
and wealth and influence and reach. And they often look like very shiny empires. And they are often applauded. And they are often set up as the example of what we are going for. But they are powered by the strong survive. Um, They are often powered on the backs of their weakest citizens. They will frequently leave others behind. And they will drop bombs where necessary in order to achieve the peace. They look like hell because death follows in its wake. Someone dies in the politics of hell. But people can be made very wealthy. People can be made very powerful. People can be made very influential. And we get an example of this in the wilderness. When Jesus goes down into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and the devil takes him to the top of a mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the earth. And he says to him, if you'll bow knee to me, I'll give these to you. And we've sort of treated that as preachers like this, almost this innocuous little moment where Satan is offering Jesus what he knows he's going to get at the cross. And it's like this is an easy pass for Jesus. Like, you're, you're silly. I'll get that at the cross. And I think we've missed the point. Because what you bow your knee to is your recognition of what works. And Satan is offering Jesus the chance to lock arms with him and go, your brains and my brawn, and we'll run this show. We'll do a lot of good for your God if you'll just bow knee to me right here. And Jesus decides that bowing the knee in the wilderness to the devil would get him the kingdoms of the earth by the power structures of hell, but it wouldn't get it giving the kingdoms of the earth by the power structure of heaven. And if you want to see the opposite, watch Jesus at the night of his last supper in John 13, where it says Jesus, knowing what was been given unto him and knowing where he was going, rose up. Here's a king, knows what's his, knows what belongs to him, all power in heaven and earth being given to him. He stands up, puts a robe, uh, an apron on, bows down on his knee for the first time, bows down on his knee and takes a basin of water and washes his disciples' feet. And they are so offended because it's not what kings do when they know they have power. And Peter goes, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't understand how this kingdom works. We wash feet. That's how we win. We don't bow the knee to the devil and pick up his sword. We owe no man anything except to love him. And so Christ takes heaven's politics and brings it down to earth. And it's so foreign, we put him on a cross for it because we're convinced it won't work. And and they were as embarrassed of him then as many people seem to be of his kingdom now that we're going to win not by picking up the sword. We're going to win by getting down on our knees and washing feet. And what they'll do to us is put us on a cross and our only conquering will be to come out as a resurrected people. So the great question becomes not when should we rebel, but what should it look like? And that will be the challenge that's much, much harder to swallow because honestly, Jonathan, we don't have any problem if you go, okay, now it's time to rebel. We're all in. Most of us. It's like, oh yes, we get to throw, we get to throw stuff. We get to knock over stuff. We get to burn stuff. And really what we're doing is just waiting for permission to act like hell in, in, under the guise of liberty. And Jesus goes, no. Let me show you a better way. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be popular. It's going to be so unpopular, none of you are even going to stand with me. Peter, you're going to go out and warm your hands by a charcoal fire and betray me three times before the rooster crows because it's not popular to stand in that moment and turn down this chance at power so that you can wash the feet. Um, That's a long way around. (laughs) That's a long road to get there, but that's... That to me helps my helps me frame those political ideas a little bit. That's great. That's great because one of the principles that we talk about that government is always walking a tightrope mm-hmm. of of control with how much they need to do to secure liberties. And there's they're always teetering back and forth. And one of our cardinal rules in discovering the subject of politics here in this Christian school is this, is that 
when it comes to liberty, there is no such thing as unrestrained liberty in its purest sense. But liberty should end when my liberty infringes upon yours. And um, why don't you talk a little bit about what that looks like in a Christian perspective? Well, I think it maybe it goes back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And then Paul works with that for a little bit. He sort of runs into some other topics or whatever. But by the time you get to what we call the 10th chapter, Paul's not breaking it into chapters, but a little later in the conversation, he circles the wagons back to that. And he says it again, but he cleans it up a little bit, almost like his thought process is getting deeper as he goes. And this time in chapter 10, he goes, all things are lawful, but they don't all edify. And so he ups the, the ante there. And whereas before it was all things are, nothing's against the law for me. I'm a new covenant believer, but they don't all, they're not all good for me. So I need to limit myself in my liberty because some of my liberties will get me killed. You know, I'm out here doing whatever I want, but that's not a great idea because whatever I want might be the, the last thing I need. Then he ups the ante because he starts to include his neighbor and he goes, all things are lawful for me, but they don't build up my neighbor and therefore I'm going to leave him alone. So notice that Paul puts a fence around his own liberty. And that fence is, if it doesn't do my neighbor some good, I really need to put the brakes on of what I'm doing. Okay, what if it did your neighbor straight up bad? (laughs) Well, he addresses that deeper in that chapter when he goes, listen, if it offends my brother, I won't do X, Y, Z while the world stands. Now, there's a gauntlet he throws down. He goes, I don't care if the whole world could be mine if I just expressed my liberty. If I know it's going to hurt you. My liberty is done. And this is the same guy that just told you you have no law. There's no restraints on your own liberty. But he goes, yes, there is. And it's called my neighbor. And what I do to my neighbor then becomes important because it defines my liberty. And if I'm crushing my neighbor, then my liberty has become a vice. It's become a weapon whereby I am no longer free because I'm free. I'm free to prove that you're not. And I see that even happen in circles of uh, even in circles of grace or in the church where people just want to show how free they are by doing all this stuff they say that they're not under the law to do, even though it's crushing people's spirits or it's people are scared and convicted and and they don't know if this is right. And we're just kind of sort of like steamrollers rolling over them spiritually, going, "Well, you'll catch up when you get a you get a revelation of grace and go." It's not the way we ought to approach this. If that's not the way we ought to approach it spiritually, well. If we're trying to reach up into the politics of heaven and put them here in, with us in earth, then maybe our, the limits of our liberty ought to be our neighbor in the politics of earth to where I am as free. I, I like what one person said, my right to punch ends at your nose. Like I can swing all day long, but if I hit your nose, my swing has went too far. So I don't have straight up liberty to just punch. I can punch the air, but if I hit you, my liberty has crossed the line into your right to be punch free. <laughs> if you have the right to not get hit, then I don't have the right to be the one who hits you. And if and and you go, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Exactly. That's when the best we have on earth starts to look a little bit like the best we have in heaven. I'll add one more thing to that that those categorizations. I'm not saying this will be easy. In fact, I think it'll be the great tension politically is how do I do the best with the earth's politics while trying to reach into heaven? Um, That tension needs to be there all the time. You're a follower of Christ. Your first allegiance is not Haiti or the United States. Your first allegiance is the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the earth are not your first allegiance ever. And so you're reaching into what Jesus says and you're hoping with doing the best you can with that, that you make the world the best place it can be, which means don't run over your neighbor and love them and owe them nothing but love. However, there's no tension. You never reach into the politics of hell. You can't. You're borrowing the tactics of the enemy and The reason why I say this is going to be tough is because if the rest of the world is reaching into the politics of hell, there's going to be some crushing going on while you're trying to reach into the politics of heaven. And I say, welcome to the faith. 
that's the man you chose to follow, who, knowing what he had, got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. This has a lot to do, I mean, there's so many um, political terminologies within the scripture, citizenship, kingdom, all of these kinds of things, like you said earlier, kings, and uh, there's so much there. And when we, when we start looking at these concepts I, uh, through a different lens, and I know that's a, a popular um, word that you use within, within your ministry and your context, but... Uh, there are so many, and you've, you've had a day for to kind of start to mull over this subject. And I could, when I actually introduce this to you, I could almost hear the gears turning behind <laughs> your eyes when I brought it up. Yeah. And uh, so, because I know you so well, and um, and so, I, and, and you may may or not may or may not want to uh, address the subject I brought up to you when we were discussing this yesterday with uh, your mention of Joseph. But there are so many. There, I, I was just going through a few of them with my students um, there's Joseph there's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego under, under the rule of uh, the Babylonians um, there's Nehemiah being a cupbearer during that same time period there's Elijah and his struggle with Jezebel and Ahab uh, and then there's Jesus in, in his he had a dual political struggle with the Jude, Judaism and also with with the Roman control there, right there at the last with Pilate, and then of course Paul even has an instance in the in the Book of Acts where he declares himself as a Roman citizen and he steps out of his role of a citizen of heaven and and makes sure that they know about his citizenship within Rome. He had dual citizenship, uh, and so there's just a, a plethora of material here. So yeah. I'm going to open the buffet to you, and, and I, I'm going to let you just pick and choose whatever resonates with you because I know that we will certainly uh, enjoy the journey. So you just pick one or more than one and have at it. Well, the, the one I think that kind of sparked this is the Joseph story with that we've been doing. I've been doing on my podcast, working through the Genesis stories. And you watch Joseph who takes this role in Egypt of basically being the savior of of the Egyptian people in regards to saving them from famine. And the great um, irony there is that Joseph uses a tactic that gets picked up by totalitarian regimes all over the world, particularly in the 20th century. We watched this happen um, in China, and we watched this happen in Russia, and we watched this happen to some extent in Germany, and now we've watched it happen maybe in real time um, as we watch the news as these as, as property is confiscated in the name of or, or, or uh, money is confiscated in the name of public safety or health, and property is confiscated in the, in the name of public safety and health. And you see Joseph sort of play that out in the, in the story of Genesis, and I'm still wrestling with, with what we do with that as a people who know that the end game of those governments is oppression and slavery. And my, my landing spot is maybe that's what God is showing us. Um, slavery is going to be the end result where that is the game, the the political game that is played. It's going to be, you're going to be slaves to something. And then God had to step in and sort of redeem his people, not sort of, he had to step in and redeem his people from the slavery of Egypt. Um, And so there are examples in the Bible where where we see good people um, dipping into the political sphere and the end result um, might have a temporary satisfaction, but not a long-term, not, not anything positive long-term. And I think that needs to be considered too by, by, uh, political science students or even biblical students is to say that because you get a short-term result, um, what did it cost you in the long run? Um, that gets offered to Jesus. I know I'm going back to the Jesus in the wilderness story, but that gets offered to Jesus in the wilderness when the devil says, Oh, you're hungry. Here, turn these stones to bread. Um, and Jesus, of course, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's sort of a um, get yourself a short-term um, solution, even though you have to sacrifice something in the long run. There's a little bit of Esau in there where you need the soup, but you're willing to surrender your future for the soup. And that's a message that every young person needs to hear. Don't surrender tomorrow for the ease of today. 
And so the Bible kind of brings us back to that theme over and over and over again. And it's interesting that it plays it out in governments or it plays it out in politics once in a while. Um, Another one that I like is, and I like it, I think, because it's one of the most, um, it's, it's one of those odd Bible stories that it's the only one that I know of in the entire Bible that never mentions God. And that's the book of Esther. Um, that book is, it drips in the politics of hell, um, being confronted by people who are playing the earthly politic game, but are reaching into the heavenly politic. Even though we're prior to the kingdom of God as expressed in Jesus, we still have the politics of heaven sort of playing out in the Mordecai character and in the Esther character, um, while the politics of hell are being on display by Haman and his attempt to completely crush God's people uh, and manipulate the king. And then the response is um, such an interesting look. And so I I, I encourage people to examine some of those stories. Or like you said, Daniel, um, these young men who had an excellent spirit in them who refused to co-op themselves with the king's meat. And there's something... Uh, sort of hidden beneath the surface there is that sometimes you, it, I don't think that has a lot to do with becoming a vegetarian or becoming, uh, you know, I, I think it has more to do with not feeding yourself on the diet provided to you by the system of this world so that you can be valuable through the, through the kingdom of heaven. And um, maybe how we ought to treat that is be careful how much of this you consume in the under the guise of being informed. Um, I try to warn believers all the time that the world loves to use this idea that you need to be informed about everything. Um, and so Christians even fall into this mode of trying to get all the info that they can under the guise of being informed only to realize that you weren't meant to have some all the information you have sometimes and that it is the recipe for destroying your peace is to know more than you can deal with. Some of these things you can't deal with outside of praying about and then letting it transform you inside of your world so that you can make a difference in the world around you. Um, we've, we've, we've become, I think, to our detriment, world changers. We get this idea when we come into church that we're supposed to change the world. And uh, we're, we're telling people to go change the world that don't know how to regularly change their socks. You know, I mean, there, there, there's something to be said for learning how to fix the world you live in before you try to go fix the world you don't live in. And sometimes when you're feeding yourself so much information about the world you don't live in, um, you can become so discouraged. This is why a lot of people think the world's going to hell. They go, well, this is worse than it's ever been. Um, although statistically, that couldn't be further from the truth. But because they're taking in so much information that generations prior to them didn't have access to, they've become convinced that everything's worse than it's ever been before. I think the personal responsibility part we talked about needs to start at home. Change the atmosphere that you live in. Change the world you live in so that it starts to permeate and then take take you into the to the rest of the world. Another one I thought of, and you mentioned Paul, who is confronted with this um, this dual citizenship. He's he's Jewish by birth, but he's a Roman citizen, and so therefore he can appeal to the powers that be in Rome. And we get this evidence in the book of Acts that he does this because he has this idea that his end game is to get to Caesar. Um, we don't know if he did or not. There's some post post. New Testament writings that sort of indicate that he did or that he might have made it all the way to Caesar, whatever. It's really neither here nor there. What really interests me in the book of Acts, um, I actually had someone say this to me recently, sort of tongue-in-cheek. Um, I was sharing with them some of the things I've shared with you um, about politics, and they said, you remind me of Paul in front of Felix when he said, much learning hath made you mad. Um I think they were being. I think they were being tongue in cheek. I think they were being loving. Um, but it really strikes me that the the landing spot for those who realize their citizenship is first above, when they go stand in front of the powers that be in the world, much learning is going. It's going to look like it's made you mad. And by mad, I mean it's going to look like you're crazy. You cannot expect 
what you're talking about to work in the real world. That's basically Felix to Paul. Is you're nuts. You come in here with this message. This doesn't fly in the room. You're not getting to Caesar with this. There's no way you're going to get to go stand in front of the the emperor of the world with this. But the Bible still gets the last word because you get to the book of Revelation and the church of Revelation, the seven churches, which is seven is a good Hebrew number for full and complete. And that's the church across time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Here's the church in the shadow of empire and they're being challenged. Who will you follow? Will you follow the slain lamb or will you follow the beast that comes up out of the earth and out of the sea? And believe you me, it's going to be easy to follow the beast because he crushes stuff and we want to win. And you want to be on the side that wins. You want to be on the side that crushes. And it's very tempting to be on that side and to stay with that side. And if I could share this too, I think one of the great comical, comical moments of the Bible um, is often not laughed at, but it would have been a comedy moment. Um, it's not laughed at because it's, I think it's misunderstood. John the Revelator is taken into the throne room of heaven. Revelation 4 is really the enthronement of a crucified Christ. Revelation 4 is, come here, I want to show you what's actually happening behind the curtain. And behind the curtain, Jesus is being enthroned. Well, when did that happen? That's not 10,000 years in the future. That happened at the cross and the resurrection. That's the ascension of Christ, is Revelation 4. One of the least preached moments in the life of Christ is the ascension. Most of us are just like, oh, Jesus disappeared. And there it is in Revelation 4. It's Jesus appearing in the heavens, being handed this scroll, being put on the throne. The 24 elders are bowing. Heaven's throwing a party. They start to rejoice. Here's Jesus. And and the angel turns to John in in this amazing moment and says, here's the scroll. No one can open it. What needs to happen in the in the future of the world, no one can handle it. And John starts to weep. And the angel goes, don't worry. There is one that can open the scroll. It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And most of us kind of stop right there. We are excited. And we write a worship song on the lion and, and how powerful the lion is. And, and we put T-shirts with a big lion and we say, this is Jesus or the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we got this deck. But the great irony of the Bible is that lions are never good. From the Old Testament all the way through. Samson uses a riddle where the lion has uh, honey in its belly and goes, out of the eater comes the sweet. Um, Peter says, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, Daniel doesn't go into a kitten den. Daniel goes into a lion's den because the lion is always, he devours prey. He's a type of the beast. Look at the beast that comes out in the book of Revelation and all of these, these haunching four-legged bodies. And so you've got the angel going, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah will open the seals. And the Bible says, and John John turned to see the lion, and behold, he was a lamb as if it had just been slain. And the great comedic moment of the book of Revelation is lions are going to win in the end. Jesus is going to be the lion that wins. Let me show you what he looks like. Ha, ha, ha. He doesn't look like the lion you're used to. He's a lion that is a slain lamb. And so the great victory of Revelation, this is where the Bible ends. It culminates in Christ wins. How? With the authority of a lion, but with the slain lamb. And then the word lamb pops up 28 times in the book of Revelation after appearing almost never. And Paul never uses the word lamb. Peter uses it once. John uses it a a couple of times in the Gospel of John. And then in Revelation, lamb, 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 lamb. Because the Bible's trying to end with this idea. God doesn't just win in the end. God won when he slain the lamb. Yes. And so it is not someday he comes back roaring like a lion. No, it's he rules as a king from the position of a slain lamb. And if you're going to let the politics of heaven invade the politics of earth, it starts by bleeding on a cross. And it keeps bleeding on a cross. And the new world's only going to come through Calvary and then through that resurrected man on the earth. Man, 
This has been just terrific. This is, I think, this is really an appropriate uh, time to end because it, it's it's really we, you know, it's been a nice circular um, coverage of the topic, and uh, I, I know you and I well enough to know that we could take so many, and you, and you're probably going to start looking at scriptures a little differently in in, in light of this, and um, as a, as am I, and uh, I just want to say personally as uh, you've. I've been friends for years and years and years. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I know my students, I've already had the Bible teacher, has, I shared with him what I was going to be doing. And he is actually opening up a section in his class on politics and a biblical uh, worldview. Oh, wow. Okay. And so he will probably be showing this in his class as well. And who knows, maybe next year we can get you down here and let you lecture to uh, two or three of our classes because I think that um, I think you have a lot to say, and I think we would be blessed by doing it. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we appreciate the time. I know you're a very, very busy guy, and uh, and I will make sure and pass along your um, all your uh, opportunities to learn from your ministry on your YouTube channel, your podcast, uh, the Deeper Daily Podcast, and all of those good things, and as well as your books. How close are you on your last on your next book? Mm, I am in what has to be the next to last chapter. I'm I, I'm I'm sort of aiming for twelve, and I'm in the middle of eleven, so we're close. <laughs> That's great. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, a little sneak peek, everybody. It's about. Jonah, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. I've read all of Paul's books, and they are fantastic. And uh, so, Paul, have a good day. Thank you, John. Uh, greet Natasha and the kids for us, Lucas and Lauren, and uh, we love you guys so much. And uh, from Haiti, we'd like to say all the way to Flower Branch, Georgia, thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Appreciate you. All right. Love you, brother. Right. Bye. There it is. Thanks for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation we have with Jonathan Carver on the politics of the Bible. And I left that little plug in there for our new book because we are getting close. More details coming soon. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.